How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. So, Marin, we've been writing and recording this second season during a global pandemic. Yeah, Greg, I know this has been a really tough year, but I know that we have both felt so lucky that we get to keep exploring these amazing stories from science history in this second season, especially because so many of them have ended up being relevant to the incredible science that's shaping our world today. Talking of which, a big part of the coronavirus conversation over the past year has, of course, been vaccines. Of course, hugely important. And it's going to continue to be. I mean, we're learning more and more about how the whole situation is developing every single week. So this conversation is going to be around for a pretty long time. Yeah, for sure. And as we're recording this, there are, I think, four vaccines around the world that have now been approved for full use. Uh, Six more in early or limited use, that is 10 authorised vaccines in less than a year. Which is even more astonishing if you think about the fact that before this, the fastest a vaccine was ever developed was in about four years. That's the mumps vaccine that we still use today, and it was developed in the 60s. Wow. So what better story for us to tell today than that of vaccines? (gasps) And in particular, the first ever vaccine, which was discovered by... Edward Jenner, right? I love that you now say that with a question mark. (laughs) It's always Uh, a question. It's, it's, you know, Edward Jenner, a well-known name to anyone who's got an interest in the history of science and medicine. Wikipedia agrees with you, as does Encyclopedia Britannica, which says he is the, quote, discoverer of a vaccination for smallpox. I'm feeling validated. He's been so celebrated, in fact, that a statue of him was unveiled in Trafalgar Square in London. Um, And at that point, he was the sole civilian figure surrounded by uh, military figures. Oh, like Nelson and generals and admirals and stuff. The thing is, you know what we do on this podcast. Yeah, we we debunk those stories. (laughs) Yeah, see, we delve into the archives, don't we? We dust off the papers, we speak to people who uh, have dedicated many, many years of their lives to becoming very well acquainted with a particular, what, area of science or a figure from science history. And Mm -hmm. yes, sometimes we discover that someone was even more exceptional than we thought they originally were. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we conclude that that person that we have raised up was just climbing on the shoulders of giants or indeed pushing them over, (laughs) pushing them out of the limelight. (laughs) Or sometimes we realise that we've just been telling the completely wrong story altogether. We love to uncover surprises. So which will it be for Edward Jenner? It's a multiple choice question, A, B, or C. A, B, or C, or D, <laughs> all of the above now. I'm work. thinking there's a, a secret unknown character, or maybe more than one, hiding, lurking in the wings of this story. That's my guess. Mm, we shall find out. Maybe Jenner is not the, the father of immunology, the father of vaccination that we 
commonly remember him to be. Hmm. All will be revealed. Plus, I've got some of the most gruesome stories I think we've ever included really? in even, this podcast. Even the yellow fever one? Even the black vomit in the eyeballs one? Even that episode, Greg? Yeah, that was pretty gross, to be fair. <laughs> uh, okay, well, <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. <laughs> so For excited. now, though, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising, yet brilliant, discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Marin Hunsberger. I'm Greg Foote, and for this episode, I am the storyteller, which means Marin gets to kick back and relax. I'm so excited. This is my jam, Greg. This Vaccines, gruesome, you ba- like, yes. Through and through. 100%. So let me introduce you to today's expert. My name is Gareth Williams. My official title is Emeritus Professor of Medicine at the University of Bristol. Uh, emeritus is the Latin for past it. So I'm retired from what I used to do. I used to be a proper medical researcher, but now I'm really into the history of medicine. And it's a subject I really wish that I'd found out more about before. Yeah, and he's really into the history of medicine. Okay, he's written 20 books, Holy crap. One of which, on Rosalind Franklin, was a super helpful resource, actually, for our first episode of season two. Oh my gosh, so Gareth coming in hot with facts for two episodes. so great, yeah. And he also wrote Angel of Death, the story of smallpox. Chilling. Which is why I chatted him for this episode. And as I discovered during our really enjoyable chat, actually, it was a good couple of hours that we were on the call. These and conversations are the best, oh, aren't they? they're so great, yeah. And it turns out he is closer to Edward Jenner than I ever realised. I live in a little village called Rockhampton, which is where I'm talking to you from now. And Rockhampton is in Gloucestershire. It's about five miles down the road from the town of Barclay which is where Edward Jenner lived and where he died. I thought you were going to say they were related, like <laughs> he had gone back in his genealogy, but that is just as cool. Just down the road. From where history was made. And in the village church in Rockhampton, there is a list of all the vicars in the church since 1260, when the church was founded, and two of them are called Jenner. And one was his father, the other one was his brother. So it was that chance encounter with the name Jenner after I'd retired from proper university life that really nudged me onto this current course. In researching Edward Jenner, Gareth became a real fan. Jenner is one of my great heroes. He, you know, he's the person in the whole of medical history I'd love to spend an evening with the most. Ah, uh, yeah. So in his, uh, his dinner of people you would invite, living or dead? Edward Jenner would be on the list. Nice. As you said earlier, Edward Jenner was born and died in the small town of Berkeley in the UK, just down the road from where Gareth is now. And Edward Jenner's story spans the second half of the 18th century, the early part of the 19th century. And the story of smallpox, though, has been... Been running for quite a while. Shall we start with that? Should we start with smallpox? Yeah, I think that's uh, smallpox is always a pretty good place to start. Okay, three points to cover. Okay, right. Uh, one, where did it come from, and okay. how widespread was it? Mm. Two, what were its symptoms? Mm. And three, how lethal was it? Ah, I feel like this is the start of one of my university lectures, Greg. We're ah. doing viruses this week. Sit back, class. <laughs> We'll put a sound effect of a real bell there. Love that. Okay, you'll notice I'm using the past tense for smallpox here. uh, And that is because... We've eradicated smallpox, right? Exactly. We've got rid of it. Uh, There is still some in cold storage in various high security labs uh, in Russia and America. But we can talk about it as an extinct bit, something locked away in the the cupboards of the Museum of Medical History. Ooh, I like that description. But also, it's like a really dangerous weapon, right? Like, it's a potential biosecurity risk. Like, people could use it for bio-warfare, right? Yeah, I read that some US soldiers are still vaccinated sometimes. Oh, because they're like on the front line and they could be Just in case. And some healthcare professionals in case of 
other right. you know, in case of a terrorist so we, attack. We've eliminated it so hardcore that we don't even need to vaccinate the public anymore. Correct. Uh, cool. Correct. But first question, where did it come from and how widespread is it? So the pox virus mm -hmm. is actually a family of viruses, just like coronavirus is a family of different variations of similar structured coronaviruses. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Smallpox is one of those pox viruses. And it used to be thought that it came from a pox that affects gerbils. <laughs> I'm sorry, gerbils get the pox? Oh. Poor gerbils, fluffy little so, things. So pox is one of the ones that is what we would call zoonotic. It comes from an animal, like a non-human animal, and transferred over into a human, right? That it was a spillover event. Mm -hmm. Was the animal a gerbil? I don't know where it is. How did it come over from a gerbil? Um, that's what they used to think. They, I think lots of people now think it could come from a camel, but that's not confirmed. Interesting. Over to Gareth. But the point is you've got benign pox viruses out there which wouldn't normally infect humans and which somehow underwent mutations which transformed them through a couple of kicks in the DNA genome into something that could infect man and then jump from one person to another and inflict a huge amount of damage on the way. Which is exactly what you were saying about zoonosis. Mm. I read accounts of an Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses V, maybe having smallpox. Mm. But Gareth said that there are a whole range of other diseases that could have left the same telltale uh, facial scars that we're sure. going to get onto in a second or two. What looks like the earliest kind of written descriptions of something that resembles smallpox is China in the 14th century. It's also written about in India in the 7th century and Persia in the 10th century. So it's been oh, hanging it's around like... for a long time. And then it's likely that trade routes took it from China and Korea to Japan. And the Arab expansion took it into northern Africa and Crusades took it up into Europe. In the 13th century, a Danish ship brought smallpox to Iceland, triggered a huge outbreak, killed 20,000 people. Oh my 40% of inhabitants. That is so many people. Man, trade does not bring just spices, silks. It also brings so much disease. <laughs> yeah. We've learned nothing from seasons one and two. Yeah. It's disease. Get this. like wildfire. 15th century, some infected Spanish conquist conquistadors. I can never say that. Conquistadors? Conquistadors? Conquistadors, yeah. Um, like or it could have been their slaves, I guess. They took it to Mexico. Mm. The Spanish moved into South America and brought smallpox with them. And you always hear about the Spanish conquistadores wiping out the Aztecs and the Incas, but actually they had a partner in crime, uh, and that was smallpox. And smallpox did a much more effective job. Wow, yeah. Colonization not only by oppression and different weapons, but by disease. It's amazing how something so tiny, you know, viruses are so infinitesimally small, mm. can make such a huge difference, can carve out like a path for the future of humanity. Yeah, not only the demise of the Aztecs and the Incas, mm -hmm. but by the time you get to the 17th, 18th century, it is everywhere. Worldwide phenomenon. It's gone viral, <laughs> if you will. But um. <laughs> If you drew a map of the world and coloured all the countries black that were infected with smallpox, the whole of the planet, except for the very top and the very bottom, would have been black. So smallpox was everywhere. Man, and this, I think, speaks to, like, this is what I'm learning about in class right now, is, like, viral genome adaptability. And in some cases, like, in season one, we had yellow fever, which is spread by mosquitoes. So it is constrained to areas that have mosquitoes, right? Mm. Something like smallpox doesn't have that constraint because it just needs humans. So wherever mm. humans are, smallpox can be. Mm, yeah. Um, on to the second question. What were its symptoms? Mm. Well, this is where it will get pretty graphic. I'm really sorry. Just to warn you. I'm uh, all about because it. Because the main symptom was pustules. Ooh big old blisters Ouch. all over your body. In many cases, 
you might have several thousand uh, smallpox blisters over your body and you might have a couple of hundred, three or four hundred on your face and head, which means that you might actually be unrecognizable. Ah, man. So not only is it, I'm I'm guessing, incredibly painful, but it's also disfiguring. Yep. Didn't Queen Elizabeth I have smallpox? Lots of people did. Mozart, Beethoven. Oh my God. George Washington. Yeah, so many, so many. You actually see the pock marks, Mm -hmm. the scars that are left over from those blisters in lots of paintings. Mm. Yeah, have a read of this. Uh, This is from an English hospital matron talking about an outbreak in London in the 1880s. Okay, so she says, I have known two sisters live in the same camp, eat at the same table, and see each other daily for a week before they recognize each other. Because of disfigurement due to smallpox? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. So um, once those blisters have gone, you get those pockmarks we just talked about. Some people just embraced it. Mm-hmm. For some people, it was like, a, hey, I've had this. I've survived. Right? I made it through. So for lots of people who were being employed by kind of the wealthy, it was like, hey, check out my pockmarks. I've had this. Like, it's safe for you to employ me. Because that means that once they had had smallpox, they would not get it again. Right? Others just thought, okay, I'm going to cover these up. Mm. I don't want anyone to see these. These are a blemish. Cake on the makeup. Society ladies had wonderful ways of covering up the pock marks of smallpox. They had artificial little bits of skin which they could plug into the holes that were left by the pock marks and things like that. And beauty spots were also designed to cover up uh, smallpox scars. That just gave me the willies big time. But you know what? It's funny because it, we have something remarkably similar in today's makeup world. Like we do primer before foundation to fill in pores and stuff. Dude, that just made me think if Kylie Jenner were alive during this time period, no. she would definitely have a pockmark filling makeup product. 100%. To plug up those holes. Yep. <laughs> okay, final question then. Number three. How lethal was smallpox? I think it's like really serious. Yeah. In its heyday. That's the 17th and 18th centuries, okay. by the way. It was said to affect one person in three. You had about a one in three lifetime chance of meeting the virus. And it was described as one of the great rivers of life that everybody has to encounter and cross at some stage. What a poetic way of putting something so grisly. Yuck. And if you got it, on average, you had about a one in four chance of dying from it. So for those two and a bit centuries, it killed about one person in 12 across the planet at large. It was one of the the big scourges of mankind, historically. My gosh, those are not good odds. Isn't that crazy? So one in three chance of getting it. Yeah. And then one in four chance of dying means (sighs) killing one in 12. There's no other virus I can think of that is so common and so deadly. Like there are human viruses like herpes viruses, for example. There are a bunch of different kinds. 90% of the human population or more has a herpes virus and we just like, you know, chill. It just chills. Right. Whereas like this many people have smallpox and it's this likely to kill you. I just feel that calling it smallpox is just it's just not right, right? It's just far too trivial for something that's so, so damaging. Doesn't make a big enough deal of it. But I guess like at the time, there were all of these other diseases that were also mm. very serious that we didn't have solutions to that were like also very disfiguring and may result in something very similar. Like I'm thinking like, I think syphilis was a really big deal here. And like syphilis, late yeah. stage syphilis results in these like horrible it's a pox. boils, It is the right? great pox of the time, oh. right? That was the big pox. <laughs> they didn't call it big pox. They just called it pox. Right. Syphilis cornered the market for serious sounding poxy type names and smallpox slipped into second place. If you go around the world, then you discover smallpox has got other other names. The Latin name was actually variola. 
which is the Latin for speckled, and that described the appearance of the skin. Again, too friendly sounding for something like smallpox, I feel. <laughs> How about this then? The American Indians had a great name for it. It was called rotting face because of the damage that it did to the skin, particularly on the head and neck. Yeesh. Yeah, that one is appropriately gruesome. But also, of course, Native Americans had a name for it because smallpox was like an essential tool in the colonization of North America and the genocide of First Nations people in what is today United States and Canada. Of course. So what could you do if you got it? Well, there was a such a long list of things you could try. Smallpox is a great example of the therapeutics of despair where people try something in the hope that it might have some sort of benefit. The therapeutics of despair, great way to put it. I mean, before we understand what causes a disease, your best hope is to maybe pray. If in doubt, leeches, oh. right? Leeches. No, bloodletting, no. Doctors use leeches to treat pretty well everything. If you went along with a headache or a broken arm, then they'd whip out a couple of dozen hungry leeches and stick them on your arms. They'd hoover up a bit of blood and you'd be charged a lot, not for any therapeutic benefit, but just because it was such a, a wonderfully impressive ritual. Okay, I just had like a total moment of terror there, but smallpox is not a bloodborne disease. It's like a respiratory disease, right? So um, the, the introduction of leeches isn't going to spread smallpox further. But smallpox is spread by people coughing. Yeah, because or... those, those blisters are on the inside of your airways. Oh my god! Right? So, um, yeah, you cough or just breathe and you breathe out those virus particles. Mm -hmm. Yeah, doing with less blood, uh, I don't think would do most people much good, especially not sick people. Brilliant story that Gareth told me, okay? Uh, it's a bit of an aside, bear with me, it's, it's amazing. I'm ready. Two physicians, two doctors in London, right? They've got a disagreement about which type of drug they think is better at treating smallpox. How do they resolve their quarrel? Fisticuffs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Pretty much. They fought a duel with swords. Oh, good Lord. In central London to try and work out whether drugs that made you throw up were better at treating smallpox than drugs that gave you torrential diarrhea. So this was the purgatives versus the emetics. And clearly neither of them did any good at all. In fact, they probably helped a few patients to die ahead of schedule. Okay, so two absolutely delightful options, neither of which are going to do you much good. No, exactly. Here's something I want to tell you about, though. This is the thing. So interesting. And this is not a treatment for when you have smallpox. Mm -hmm. Okay, it's kind of too late then. This is for something that can help prevent you catching it. Okay, so, I mean, like a vaccine? Well, yeah, something that was around much before vaccination. When I started researching, I was really amazed because there was a procedure before vaccination, which I'd never heard of. It's called variolation. Variolation sounds absolutely crazy. And it's basically taking some smallpox pus, actual smallpox pus from a smallpox patient, by sticking a knife in one of those ghastly looking pustules and scratching that awful material into the skin of a healthy child. Told you it was going to get gross. I wish people could see my face. That I feel unwell. <laughs> so variolation, also known as inoculation. Yes, I was just about to ask, is this where we get the introduction of this term? So inoculation is now a wider term for putting any small amount of infected matter into the body to prevent a full disease from developing. Variolation is specifically inoculating against smallpox. How did people know? How did this come about? Well... 
Where was it first done? Possibly Africa, possibly Turkey, possibly China. Oh, oh China has a really interesting version of variolation. Uh, brace yourself. Okay. What they did in China was to wait until the pustules had scabbed over. Oh, God. This sounds pretty gross, but you then peel off the scabs. Oh, no. Uh, you powder the scabs in a pestle and mortar, and you then blow this awful smallpox infected powder up the nostril of a child. No. <laughs> But actually, also, that's crazy because it is so reminiscent of, like, we have vaccines that you can take via inhalation. Mm. It's an incredible procedure. This is this right? is so ahead of its time. What's even more incredible is it worked. We're going to get to how later, but what a bonkers thing to do. Absolutely mad. I can't believe somebody had this idea and was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's see what happens. The people who came up with that idea were, were not only visionaries, but they were hugely courageous. Because if you think of what a smallpox patient looks like and the high risk of that patient is going to die, the last thing <laughs> that common sense would tell you to do would be deliberately to inflict that kind of fate on a healthy child. I think this episode, Greg, has our yellow fever episode from last season beat. This one wins for grossness, yes. but also like cool factor. This is amazing. Okay, here's my question, though. Why, if this is effective, doesn't it catch on and become like the the thing that everyone does. It does. Okay. And here is the story of how it catches Aha. on. Okay, I'm going to go to Turkey because it was stories of what was going down at smallpox parties over in Turkey that led to variolation coming to the UK and then into the life of Edward Jenner. But first, it's time for a break. Smallpox parties? <laughs> Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant and the story of the first vaccine, which may or may not come when we meet Edward Jenner shortly. Right now, though, we are uh, pre-vaccination. We've been looking at something similar, variolation, this practice of deliberately infecting a healthy person with smallpox pus in order to prevent them from getting the full disease in the future. It's time to introduce you to someone. Lady Mary Wortley Montagu. Fancy? Lady Mary Wortley Montagu, just one of amazingly colourful characters, the sort of person that makes the history of science uh, just come alive. I wish I could tell you her whole story, but we're going to have to make do with a, a super short version. She sounds fun. She eloped with uh, a career diplomat and ended up as the ambassador's wife in Constantinople in Turkey, the Ottoman Empire. This is early 18th century by the way, like 1716, I think she heads over to Turkey. And she loves the culture, right? She wants to see and experience everything. She disguises herself as a man in order to get shown around a mosque. 
What? Yeah. Uh, she sneaks into a harem and chats to the ladies that are in there. Endless adventures. And she writes astonishing letters home, which are just like you know, a mixture of Hello magazine and National Geographic, just describing all the amazing things. I've got some passages from one of these letters right here. I'd like you to read. Okay, so this is a, a letter from Lady Mary in Turkey. I'm going to tell you a thing. The smallpox, so fatal and so general amongst us, is here entirely harmless by the invention of engrafting, which is the term they give it. There is a set of old women who make it their business to perform the operation every autumn in the month of September. People send to one another to know if any of their family has a mind to have the smallpox. They make parties for this purpose, and when they are met, the old woman comes with a nutshell full of the matter of the best sort of smallpox and asks, what vein you please to have opened? She immediately rips you open that you offer to her with a large needle, which gives you no more pain than a common scratch, and puts into the vein as much matter as can lie upon the head of her needle, and after that binds up the little wound with a hollow bit of shell, and in this manner opens four or five veins. Greg. <laughs> You left me hanging before the break on smallpox parties and you have not disappointed. This is absolutely wild. Yeah. So once a year, yeah, the children of diplomats are assembled and an, an old Turkish lady arrives. She's got a half walnut shell full of freshly collected smallpox pus. Oh, God. And she scratches it into the children's arms. Incredible. Yeah. There's even a needle involved. And they're still calling this... They called it engrafting. Okay. Um, which is called elsewhere and will be called variolation. Mm -hmm. Is everybody chill with this? Is everybody just like, yeah, 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 fill, fill me up with pus? Well, to use your language, Mary is so chill with this, <laughs> right? She sees its effects and she thinks, yeah, I'm going to variolate, I'm going to engraft my son. So here's, here's another little bit from a letter. <laughs> this is hilarious. The boy, boy with a capital B. Her son. The boy was engrafted last Tuesday and is at this time singing and playing and very impatient for his supper. So that's how safe people felt with this. They were like, yeah, 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 I'll send my kid to get engrafted, whatever. Like they get sick for a little bit, but they get better and, and then they don't seem to get smallpox. Wow. So people are recognizing that this is really effective at preventing this deadly disease. And then when Mary returns to London, she starts spreading the word and she's got like a sun in tow behind her. Not spreading the virus, spreading the spreading word. Spreading the word. <laughs> He's a bit of a demonstration case that so Lady Mary shows him and describes a practice to some pretty serious doctors and also Sir Hans Sloane, who was then president of the Royal Society. And Lady Mary was in good terms with Princess Caroline of Ansprach, who was in the royal family. And one thing led to another. And before you know what's happening, uh, variolation is being practiced on inmates due to be executed in Newgate Prison. And then when that goes according to plan, then it's the various princesses, the sons and grandchildren of people in the Royal Society and the College of Physicians and things like that. And the whole practice takes off. That's an interesting order of operations, prisoners and then princesses. I guess it speaks to the fact that... Test it out. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, on people It's all clear. Have and no then choice. give it to the... Then you go down the pecking order. Good I know, Lord. it's bonkers. And when I, you know, he says it really takes off, it really takes off across the pond in America too, actually. Although that's partly thanks to a Boston minister who heard about it from Wonsimus, his slave, who went through it in his home country of Liberia in West Africa. And, long story short... George Washington takes charge of the army in 1775 and he orders what must surely be, to use our modern language and understanding, the first massive state-funded immunisation campaign in history. That's incredible. 
he variolates all the troops. Even before we kind of know how it is working. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, that's so funny because it like it gets fashionable, right? This is kind of like a high society lady coming back and the princesses get inoculated. And then it becomes like a tactical, strategic thing. Like you need the army to do it. Yeah. So he variolates all those troops. The infection rate in the army drops from close to 20% down to like 1% or 2%. Holy schmoly. And they win the years-long battle with the British. Oh yeah, the Revolutionary War! And this was before variolation was actually legal in the state. After it, after the success of it, it became legalised in the States. Oh, because I hadn't even thought about the law <laughs> and like how that it was related that to this thing. medical practice. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's happening in the States. It's becoming more and more popular in the UK. And it is time to return to Edward Jenner. Aha. So, Edward has experienced variolation himself 20 years before Washington's mass variolation of the troops. And that's because, sadly, when both of Edward's parents died, he was young and he was sent to a boarding school just a few miles down the road from the village of Berkeley. Edward Jenner and all the other new boys in this boarding school were forced to be variolated as a condition of entry. So Jenner and all the other little boys were locked up in the stables to keep them nice and cold. They were bled repeatedly by the doctor. They were given purgatives to open their bowels and purify the blood. Okay, that's not medically relevant. We have this actually helpful thing, the variolation, and then these things, which are like absolutely nonsensical, which you do not need and would probably be worse if you're getting inoculated with something. Very different from uh, mm. the Turkish lady with her half worn up full of pus. But this is because English variolators were making a fortune, right? They would invent and they would perform their own procedures. Ah, so we're seeing the commercialization, people exactly. profiting off of this. That's interesting too, because we still see, you know, like mass requirement of some kind of inoculation or some kind of preventative measure for disease. Like before, I don't know if this happens in the UK, but in the US, before you go to college, you have to get the meningitis vaccine so that you don't spread meningitis uh -huh. to your freshman dorm hall. And um, this whole thing though, like all this crazy procedure he was put through really affected him. He wasn't left badly scarred physically, but he did carry the mental scars until very late in his life. It must have been pretty horrible for him, but to my mind, it's possibly one of the things that kept him focused on the need to come up with something better than variolation. So indirectly, it may have helped him to persevere with the thoughts about vaccination. Yeah, bloodletting, forced vomiting and diarrhea like that would be pretty traumatizing to a child yeah, he, i think yeah he probably thinking there must be something better than this <laughs> when he leaves school uh, he starts as a medical apprentice at an apothecary down the road and it's there that he may as well as learning the rudiments of medicine he may have met the legendary milkmaid who told him that cowpox had this power to protect against smallpox which is in all the books yep that's the story that i've heard for sure we're gonna pause here this milkmaid is often referred to. You've heard of her. 100%, yeah. So the story goes like this. Edward Jenner meets a milkmaid and she's either got or she's had cowpox mm -hmm. herself and then she doesn't catch smallpox or she tells him that she's seen this, whatever it is. So let's unpick this. First of all, what is cowpox? Cowpox is another of the pox virus family. It's called cowpox because that's where it was first described. But actually, these days, you're more likely to see cowpox in cats and in uh, an exotic rodent called the African giant pouched rat, which apparently was popular as a Christmas present some years ago. If someone wants to give you one, don't take it because it might carry cowpox. What? Good advice there from Gareth. Thanks. <laughs> I'm learning so, so much. So cowpox is a virus that can infect cows. Okay. 
It produces a few blisters, a few pox on their udders. Mm. Apparently, little discomfort to them. Mm-hmm. And then milkmaids who handled those udders. Mm. I don't know why I'm doing yeah, the action. This is a podcast record. going on here. <laughs> <laughs> milkmaids who handled those udders. They could catch cowpox. And then they would be mildly ill for a few days. Mm. They'd get a few pox on their hands normally, but nothing more serious than that. Second question then. Mm. Did this milkmaid encounter happen? I like to think yes, <laughs> but maybe it just makes for a good story. Well, that's exactly it. Did it happen? Possibly. Yeah. Right? But what is clear is that this isn't something that Edward discovered himself. The idea that catching cowpox protects you from smallpox, that's not new. It was a story that was known in farming, milking communities in England and also in Germany and probably in Persia as well. But it was not at all known to medics to doctors and scientists. So I feel like we get this a ton on this podcast where this community acquired knowledge, essentially, just from years and years and generations of experience handling a certain item or using something where they just observe over time that this thing, maybe it's quinine water, maybe it's cowpox, prevents or helps with this, you know, debilitating disease, sort of, you know, builds up to a point where it's like, aha, ta-da. But then, like, does one person get the credit for the light bulb that happens? Well, here is where the story may have come from. The legend of the milkmaid actually comes in the biography of Jenner written by John Barron. And John Barron was a friend and student of Jenner and a great admirer of his and may well have concocted or at least embroidered the story to make Jenna look better. You know, the master intellect rather than somebody who picked up somebody else's observation. Love that. Love a flattering portrait by a friend. (laughs) Okay, so Jenna has heard of this cowpox protection onto smallpox from the farming community. After his apprenticeship at the apothecary, he heads to London and he trains at St. George's Hospital. And then aged 23 in 1772, a few years, this is before George Washington's mass variolation of the troops, Edward then heads back to Berkeley again. With the intention, I think, of becoming a rather quiet, laid-back kind of doctor. Just chillaxing with the leeches. And he does practice as a physician, as a local doctor. And it is important to note here, that does involve him variolating people against smallpox. Mm, So performing the thing that was done on him when he was a child, I'm imagining he's interested in making that experience a little more pleasant than it was for him. Yeah, he's also interested in a lot of other things, though. He's inspired by the Montgolfier brothers that we talked about in an earlier episode, and he goes and flies balloons. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, He does some interesting chemistry that I read about. Super cool. And he also publishes a paper on... Well, actually, let's see if you can have a guess. Right. It's a strange behaviour in natural history. Can you give me a Okay, it's a strange behaviour of a bird that hasn't been documented before. Okay, I'll put you out your pain. Please do. Have a look at this. <laughs> the ornithologist in me is feeling very disappointed. <laughs> okay, so this is a, in, a, in a book, I'm assuming, called The Philosophical Transactions. Mm-hmm. And it is titled Observations on the Natural History of the Cuckoo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, wait, that's really cool. This is on the nesting habits of the cuckoo. Which are, re- to be fair, 
quite strange. He is the first to document that cuckoos like heave their competitors out of the nest. What? Yeah. Uh, that's so funny. I okay. This is in such stark contrast to today's science, where you have to specialize in like the in one most thing. minute yeah. niche of your field. Like scientists back in these days were just like, I hey, just talk about cuckoos. So think about chemistry. We'll put a link to that in the show notes because he so writes. Funny. Funny. You know, he realizes about its shoulder blades and it, oh, it's super interesting. Um, and he's actually he's made a fellow of the Royal Society for that. For this paper on cuckoos? Mm-hmm. For the cuckoo paper. Definitely not what I have ever remembered Edward Jenner for. Yeah. But a, a remarkable contribution to science. Yeah, right. But this story is all about the first vaccination. So let's take us back there. And I want to bring in two people. I want to bring in John Fuster and Benjamin Jesty. Okay. Let's go for John Fuster first. John is a keen variolator. Okay, indeed, he runs a variolation house. He's on the variolation train. Yeah, and we're back in 1762, and he's he's variolating two brothers, and he notices something. Normally, when you variolate someone, you administer that infected smallpox pus, right, onto their skin, uh, and the patient would get a little mini outbreak of smallpox. Sure. They wouldn't get thousands. They'd maybe just get a hundred or so of those pustules. A localised reaction. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and and minor compared to full-blown, but... John Fuster finds out that one of the brothers didn't get that. And then when he and his colleague ask the brother whether he's had smallpox before, the brother replies, quote, I tell you, I hadn't had the smallpox, nor the great pox neither, but I have had the cowpox. So not smallpox, not syphilis, but cowpox. Yeah. Now, a year or so later, John Fuster presents a paper on this to the London Medical Society with the title Cowpox and Its Ability to Prevent Smallpox. That's in 1765. And that's John Fuster, not Edward Jenner. But John Fuster knows Edward Jenner. They hang out. They were both members of the same medical scientific drinking and eating and talking club. Sounds fun. I'd like to be invited. It's called the Convivio Medical Society. Ah, fantastic. So they discuss all this, right? So Edward Jenner's probably hearing John Fuster's discoveries. This is in 1765. Mm. But it isn't until 30 years later in 1796 that John Fuster gets the idea of deliberately getting cowpox and giving that deliberately to healthy people uh, and then seeing if they are immune to smallpox, which you can test by variolating them. Fuster was reported to have vaccinated people around this area many times. So Gareth just used the word vaccination to describe this. Well spotted. Now, that's because this is no longer variolation. So variolation is giving a healthy person a small amount of smallpox to protect them against full-blown smallpox in the future. What Fuster's doing is he's experimenting with giving cowpox a different virus to those healthy people to see if it gives them protection against smallpox, something that, as we'll see, becomes known as vaccination. Okay, okay. So in the case of variolation, we have live virus that's being introduced to a healthy person. Yes. And to my knowledge, like variolation so far has sounded like a great solution, but to my knowledge, variolation was actually did come with risk, right? So you could have a small localized reaction and then be protected from smallpox, but mm-hmm. you could like get a full-blown case of smallpox and you could even spread it to other people. So variolation could be potentially quite dangerous. Whereas cowpox, not deadly. Like humans don't die from it. Really mild. You get a couple blisters and you're chill and it protects you from smallpox. So like with that comparison in mind, cowpox is the better option. And the question is, was this the first vaccination? 
Fuster did a limited vaccination campaign. He probably did a couple of dozen vaccinations around the town of Thornbury. But he decided that it wasn't actually as good as variolation. And he decided not to continue with the experiments. Why? What was his evidence? He was a variolator, right? And he was like, variolation is fine. Yes, when you variolate someone, when you use that smallpox pus, they get a couple of pustules, they get ill for a week. But then they're fine, they're protected. Right, I don't need to go doing this vaccination with this cowpox anymore. I've got a good gig going. Right, if it, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, I guess. <laughs> We're not done with John Fuster. We're going to come back to him. But I want to introduce that other chap that I mentioned. Jesty. Benjamin Jesty. I remember yeah. him because his name is great. <laughs> he was a farmer who had no medical education at all. But he had actually picked up the fact that if you got cowpox then you appeared to be protected from getting smallpox. So he's again one of these people who is like living this reality, noticing this happening in, you know, the sense that he has his hands on the udders that have the, <laughs> the blisters. So what does he decide to do? He deliberately gives cowpox to his wife and his two sons. Hopefully with their permission. I'm sure it was with their permission. <laughs> However, it doesn't go to plan. Oh no. His wife's arm got infected. In fact, she nearly died. Ah. And as a result of that, Benjamin Jesse and his family were actually chased out of Yetminster, the, the town in, in Dorset where they lived and where they had their farm for years. In reality, what his wife almost died from was blood poisoning. Yeah, that's... that's because a... he used a rusty knitting needle. Oh my, well that was a poor choice, okay. Mm. However, what Benjamin Jesse then does is he challenges, that's the language you use, he challenges his sons with smallpox. And he had already exposed them to cowpox. So he's done the cowpox. Okay. And then a little while later, he wants to see whether that does give them this protection oh in smallpox. So he challenges them. High he gets stakes. Them, gets them variolated, which yeah. as we know is with actual smallpox pus, right? And they don't react to that smallpox. They don't get those blisters forming. So Benjamin Jesse has technically performed a successful vaccination, as we later call it. <laughs> On his family unit. Because he's used that cowpox to give protection against smallpox. Just a casual clinical study. When was this? Uh, 1774. Whoa. In Yetminster, in Dorset. That's 90 miles from John Fuster and Edward Jenner and 22 years before them. So Jesty is first. I asked Gareth the question that you are no doubt pondering right now. Did John Fuster know of Benjamin Jesty's work? Almost certainly not. <laughs> Reason being... Benjamin Jesty doesn't repeat this. He doesn't write it up or anything like that. He's a farmer. Right, he just, he's just like worried about his family, yeah, right? He he's not protect. like trying to report it to the Royal Society got, or something. He got run out of town for it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. But this does raise the question, what did Edward Jenner do that was different to Benjamin Jesty mm. or John Fuster? That is the question I'm going to put directly to Gareth after the break. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant, and let's jump 12 years on from Benjamin Jesty's first vaccination of smallpox by cowpox. That takes us to 1796. John Fuster has just done his handful of vaccination trials at that point. He decides not to continue because he thinks that variolation is great. Why bother with this cowpox stuff? However, he has been discussing his findings and his experiments many times with Edward Jenner at the Convivio Medical Society. Sounds like a party. So let me put the question we are all pondering directly to Gareth. So what did Edward Jenner do? Well, Edward Jenner firstly collected 
a series of cases who'd had cowpox and had then been exposed to smallpox. He wrote up those as case reports. Fuster hadn't written it up. He hadn't done it systematically. He made the observation. So Edward Jenner starts a series of experiments, which, you know what, appear to me to be pretty much the same protocol as John Fuster mm. did. Okay, he gives someone cowpox, you wait a bit, you variolate them with smallpox and you see if they respond to it. It's just that Jenner was doing more of them and he was recording them scientifically. Okay, so he's like writing them up and being systematic about it. Yeah, and he starts those experiments in May 1796, just a few months after John Fuster did his. Is Fuster mad about it? Is this like okay? Well, John Fuster's decided not to carry on with his couple of little experiments and he's told Edward Jenner and Edward Jenner's just kind of like picking it up and running with it. And there's a story, another one that's kind of often told about Edward Jenner and it's about his first subject of vaccination, an eight-year-old boy called James Phipps. James is the son of Edward's gardener, actually. Mm. And um, apparently what happens is Edward finds a local milkmaid, one Sarah Nelms. And Sarah has a cow called Blossom. Blossom. Blossom has cowpox. Sarah has caught cowpox from Blossom. And Sarah has some pustules on her hand. Delightful. And what Edward Jenner does is he takes some juice from one of those pustules on Sarah and scratches it into James's arm. We'll never get over how horrible this sounds. Then, a couple of months later, he gets some smallpox pus from another local boy and he administers that to James and James doesn't get sick. This is what is often called the first vaccination. But perhaps, perhaps it's actually more accurately the first documented vaccination yeah. or the first vaccination of this whole set of vaccinations. Right, because like, why do we remember Edward and James and Sarah? Why are they such a fixture in our scientific history? Rather than Benjamin Jesty's wife and kids? Yeah. Or John Fuster's initial experiment? Yeah. Exactly. And this is what Edward Jenner does next. He wrote up, first of all, a paper which he sent to the Royal Society. And remember, he was a fellow of the Royal Society because of his work on cuckoos. And he sends them what is potentially one of the greatest publications in the history of medicine. And they reject it. (laughs) That is hilarious. I also just love picturing the, I don't know, like selection committee for whoever's deciding what they publish. And they're like, this is the guy who published on cuckoos? No, no, we're not taking this. And now he's putting pus into someone's (laughs) what? This is a thing that we, we've seen throughout the history of science. Yeah, you've got Peter Higgs's first paper on the Higgs mechanism, right? That's rejected. Shut down. There's one for the fundamental physics nerds. Uh, you've got Hans Krebs' paper on the Krebs cycle, also rejected. No way. One for the bio nerds. Um, how about the whole Galileo's heliocentric, the sun-centered universe? Obviously, that was kicked out for, for quite a, a while. For a long so, you know, time. It's a thing that's happened to a few people past and before him and you gotta, him. you gotta be able to stick to your guns instead of sending it back revised or whatever uh jenner publishes it himself and the publication is called an inquiry into the causes and effects of the cowpox and this came out in september 1798 and was essentially a bestseller from 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 day one he also draws the illustrations in that himself like this one of sarah nelms's Hand. Here oh you my go. God. Okay, I'm ready. Oh my God, that's gruesome. <laughs> the, ooh, the, okay, I'm not a fan of how realistic these boils, blisters, pus filled craters look in this illustration. This and those is an are illustration. Just, they're just the cowpox ones, right? Ugh. Think about the severity of smallpox. They're so yellow, Greg. The full name of that paper, by the way, is An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of the Variolae Vaccinae, a disease discovered in some of the western counties of England, particularly Gloucestershire, and known by the name of the cowpox. The key thing there is those two words, Variolae Vaccinae. Is that the name that he's come up with for cowpox? 
Exactly. Whoa. It had a posh made up Latin name, variola vaccinae. Variola is just smallpox, but vaccinae means of cattle. So cowpox equal variola vaccinae. Okay, wait. So our name for vaccine comes from the word for cow because cowpox was the first disease used to vaccinate against another disease? Right. He doesn't call it vaccination when he actually publishes the inquiry. But, uh, actually, Gareth, Gareth, over to Gareth. One of his friends, a man called Richard Dunning, who was a surgeon down in Plymouth, decided to come up with a new word for this procedure of giving cowpox to people. So he decided on vaccination. I had literally never thought about the etymology of the word vaccination, but this makes perfect sense. In Spanish, cow is vaca. In French, it's vache. Vaccine! Oh my god, Greg, my mind has been blown! Cool, isn't it? Yeah, that's amazing. really cool. Um, in the inquiry, Edward Jenner also describes not only the case reports, but also his whole procedure for doing vaccination, like step by step, like how you go through it. And if you, dear listener, love little science history facts as much as us here, here is another one for you. 80 years after Edward Jenner's inquiry, you've got Louis Pasteur, French biologist, chemist. He of pasteurization. Great dude, bacteria knower and lover. He's working on something uh, to protect people against rabies. Ah. Something he decides to call the rabies vaccine in homage to Jenner. Well, in homage to Richard Dunning's use of Jenner's word, of course. So this is where we start to get the use of the word to describe this general idea of what we now call vaccination, yeah. like using a disease or a weaker form of a disease or a related disease to protect someone against infection. Exactly that. Louis Pasteur essentially suggests that all future inoculations that are designed to protect someone against an infection, they should be called vaccinations. Okay, so this is really a group effort. Looking like it, isn't it? Back to Edward Jenner's inquiry. It, of course, outlines all of his results, uh, but it also has a go at explaining the science of what is going on as well. You can pick holes in the inquiry. It's quite easy to do that with a paper that, you know, was written 200 odd years ago. But it's something that stands the test of time as a document of communication. The thing is, no one at the time knew about germ theory, right? How viruses and bacteria cause illness. Your, you know, what you live and breathe. You know, right? my That's field your of thing. study. A popular theory at the time was that um, illnesses and infections were caused by bad air. Yeah, that's a good one. Love that. Miasma. Um, interestingly, though, Jenna did use the word virus. What? But, but in a completely different way. It was kind of used in medical parlance as just something toxic or poisonous. Oh my gosh. But it's not that we knew what viruses were or no. that they could make you sick. As this is your bag, do you want to um, explain to us cowpox yes. and how, how cowpox protects against smallpox? Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm so excited. He's doing like cheering arms in the air. <laughs> okay. So when something enters your body that can make you sick, your immune system reacts and you have cells that will be like, oh, this thing is bad and binds to it and produces what is called antibodies that will help your body fight it off and clear it out of your system. Yeah. Now, what those antibodies are binding to and reacting to are like these identifying markers, usually on the outside of a pathogen, virus, bacteria, surface proteins, stuff like that. We talked about them with coronavirus, right? They're the thing that give it the, the classic crown shape that gives it the name coronavirus. Exactly. That's the spike protein on the outside of the coronavirus. So what's happening with cowpox is that cowpox and smallpox, as we've discussed, are related, right? They have very similar surface structures. So when you introduce cowpox, very mild, very harmless to your body, your body produces antibodies 
to the outer surface structures of that cowpox. So now when you get smallpox later or you're getting introduced to smallpox, your immune system's like, we've seen this before, get it out, get it out. And it's actually remarkably similar to what we do with a lot of vaccines these days, putting a weaker, milder, safe form of a germ or uh, an identifying structure of a germ into your body so it can recognize it later. And this concept, I think we primarily think of vaccines as being for viruses, right? This is the concept that underpins the COVID vaccines that are going on right now. But you can make a vaccine for bacteria. You can make a vaccine for other microbes. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's super cool. All right, thanks, mate. That was perfect. So that's pretty much where I'm going to end this kind of most detailed part of the story of the development of vaccination. Before we discuss, though, whether Edward Jenner is indeed the, quote, father of vaccination, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to whiz you through what happened next. And with the popularity of Edward's paper and how easy it is for physicians, for doctors to copy that procedure that he included in the inquiry, vaccination spread super quickly through England and then into France, into Switzerland and on and on and on. And Gareth has such a great story about this. Here you go. One of the incredible stories is when a French translation of the inquiry finds its way to the court of Spain and King Charles IV of Spain decides to send a, a royal philanthropic expedition uh, literally around the world to the Spanish colonies in the Caribbean, South America and the Indian Ocean. And it's, it's quite a, again, it's one of those really moving stories. They have a, a little fleet of ships that set off from a port in Galicia, northern Spain. Uh, they cross the Atlantic to the Caribbean. They then divide one lot, crosses Mexico on horseback, picks up a boat and comes back around the back of the world through the Indian Ocean. The other lot go down through South America, around Tierra del Fuego, back across the Atlantic. So the two limbs of the expedition, if you like, encircle the globe and they take vaccination with them. And everywhere they go, they get this rapturous reception because word has got ahead that this really is the first decisive weapon, the first really good weapon in the history against this awful uh, mutilating brute of smallpox. Perhaps this was the Spanish making up for taking smallpox to the Aztecs. And I was the just about to say, like, just like they spread smallpox, I'm very glad they decided to turn it around and be good citizens of the world and then also spread the solution. That expedition lasts three years. And I'm, I'm not going to go into how they transport the vaccine around. Okay, all right. Your, your face says I need Please to. Please do. Um, <laughs> essentially, it's carried by a series of orphaned boys whose vaccination blisters are then used to vaccinate the next set of boys oh my et cetera, god et cetera. it's yeah. carried in a human incubator yeah it's not exactly ethical what? they don't die from it they don't die from it right and they're actually brought up by a church in mexico and then the spanish acquire some more orphans for the next leg of the journey or maybe yeah. we should say arm of the journey or whatever <laughs> um, but anyway yeah this this expedition and others like it take vaccination around the world by the time Jenna died in 1823, vaccination had spread really very effectively across Europe, Russia, the Americas, uh, into Indochina, Indonesia. If you did it on a grand scale, trying to get everybody in a population, then you could actually push the virus itself or the infection into a corner. Uh, and again, that's a strategy that was adopted on a global scale during the 1970s that actually finally led to the extermination of smallpox in 1980. I was going to say, this sounds like the precursor to modern day vaccination campaigns conducted by the WHO, the UN, to eradicate things like smallpox, things like polio. We're trying to do that with mumps and measles and things like that. Exactly that. Yeah. Now, a couple of days before Jenna dies, apparently he says, I do not marvel that men are not grateful to me. 
but I am surprised that they do not feel gratitude to God for making me the medium of good. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's an important dude. And I guess by this point, like he realizes how important vaccination and his work, because he was the first one to write it down, is. Yeah. But yeah. There is a line from his Come epitaph on. which kind of sums it up as well, actually. Immortal Jenna whose gigantic mind brought life and health to more than half of mankind. True. Just kind of put it into perspective. <laughs> I like the phrase gigantic mind, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Marin Hunsberger. Gigantic, gigantic mind. mind. <laughs> Would love. <laughs> Vaccination against smallpox, obviously such an important thing. And vaccination still is, of course. I read that immunisation currently prevents two to three million deaths every year. Mm -hmm. But did Edward Jenner discover it, right? As the Encyclopedia Britannica says, as Wikipedia says, as you thought as well. True. What are you thinking? I'm gonna go with no. But here's the thing. I feel like throughout our time on this podcast, Greg, I will be loath to say any one person discovered or invented anything. Because as always, the conclusion is it's a cumulative process. Whether people are working together or fighting with each other about it, it's almost never gonna be just one person. I think there are two things that Edward Jenner did, right? The first is that he made people aware of the fact that cowpox can protect against smallpox. The thing that Jenner did, which nobody else had done, for which he does deserve credit, even if he didn't think of the idea himself, he made people aware of it. He pushed it into mainstream medical practice and then telling the world about it and making sure that people took it seriously and made it happen. Exactly. And this speaks again, which is another recurring theme on this podcast, to how important the communication of something is after the fact. It just as important, if not more important, than the actual discovery itself. And that's what I think is the second point, actually, is that what he was sharing was he was sharing his vaccination method in detail. Mm. Jenna could easily have kept this a secret which is what doctors did then. They, they had their own secret recipes for their treatments. But he doesn't. He publishes it. He publishes his procedure. So he, he was one of the first people, if you like, to favour open access publication, <laughs> as well as the, uh, the free dissemination of new knowledge. Yes, I'm so on board. Okay, I'm back on board with Jenner. Yes, <laughs> open access publication so that people can have the resources to learn how to do things and to further their field. Essential. Big discussion at the moment, right? Makes science less elite, more accessible. God. Big time. And he was kind of one of the first to do it. So what does Gareth, you know, massive fan of Edward Jenner, what does Gareth think? The whole question of Jenner's overall role is an interesting one. He certainly wasn't the father of vaccination because, again, other people had done that before he did. Um, I think he was the midwife, though, because he's the one that really made it happen. He brought it to people's attention and pushed it into mainstream medical practice, which other people had not bothered to do. He guided it into the world. I love the that description. of vaccination. All right, I'll take that. Yeah, yeah. That's how I will now retell the generous story. So there we go. Encyclopedia Britannica, Wikipedia, everyone else. Maybe we change it from father to midwife. I agree. <laughs> oh, there you go. I loved um, researching this and, and chatting to Gareth. It's time to say our thank yous and our goodbyes, sadly. Today's expert was Gareth Williams, Emeritus Professor and former Dean of Medicine at the University of Bristol and author of many books, including Angel of Death, The Story of Smallpox. And as a little bonus for you, if you are still listening to the credits, Gareth told me how Edward Jenner also wrote poetry and played the flute. Something else they uh, no they share, actually, way. because Gareth also plays the flute. And Gareth offered to recite one of Edward Jenner's poems for us. Oh, yes, please. Yeah, you want to hear it? Yeah. This is a poem that uh, Jenner wrote on the death of a Dr. Waite, 
And Dr. Waite was famous for his gingerbread nuts. And the gingerbread nuts were a medicinal biscuit containing various things to kill worms. And intestinal worms were a great curse at the time. And Dr. Waite's gingerbread nuts were actually one of the things that were recommended as a cure. So when Dr. Waite died, Jenner wrote the following, and it begins with the Latin names of some of these revolting intestinal worms. Ascarides, Teres, Lumbrici, and all, ye kyle-sucking insects that tremblingly crawl, no more be afraid, you're quite safe in our guts, for Waite has done making his gingerbread nuts. To gingerbread nuts is not something I anticipated encountering on this podcast, Greg, but I'm really glad we did. You're welcome. <laughs> if you enjoyed this podcast episode as much as I did, please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone you think may enjoy this episode. We have lots more episodes on their way, so please do subscribe to catch them. And if you have a story from science history that you want us to tell, or a discovery, an invention, a person that you want to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com and if you'd like to get in touch on social we always love that uh, this is Marin Hunsberger she goes by at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter at Marin B on Instagram and this is Greg Foote who is at Greg Foote on both Twitter and Instagram Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker this episode was written by me Greg Foote my co-host is Marin Hunsberger and our producer was Katerina Kropschoffer this episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger and we had support from the team at Seeker including Caroline Roth Jessica Young Megan Bates and Megan Fu and from the Group 9 podcast team including supervising producer Emily Feld the show's executive producers are me Marin Brian Pendergast Brett Kushner and Mangesh Hatkadur and you can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com We'll catch you in the next one. See ya. Bye.